Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Mailbag. Nothing personal. Word of the day is mailbag. It is the monthly mailbag episode. I appreciate what you do. You go onto Apple or you get into Twitter. For those of you who don't download and listen to this on Apple, you can get into Twitter and ask a question or an Instagram. I try to answer a question during the daily Nothing Personal, which is the So You Want to Talk to Samson segment. And then when there's more general questions that come with five-star reviews, those get special attention. More general questions I like to answer. We do this once a month, end of the month. And guess what? It's the end of October. We have made it through the gauntlet that is the Major League Baseball season. I'm going to get right into it because we got so many this month. I don't even know if I'm going to get to all of them, Mikey, but I'm going to try. Here we go. This is pretty relevant, which is why I'm leading off. The St. Louis Cardinals are getting roasted for the trades of Luke Voigt and Randy Arazarena. How much did teams scrutinize scouts and player development personnel after the results of trades become apparent? That's a great question because there is a real misnomer out there in the general public. You all, and by the way, when I got into baseball, I was this also. I was a fan, and then all of a sudden I was leading a team. And I had run a business before. I'd been on Wall Street before, but I'd never run a baseball team. And my view of a baseball team is I'm looking at every decision after the fact. And if it ends up being wrong, then I want someone held accountable. But I don't want to wait. I want to know immediately. If we trade for a guy and he goes 0 for 4 in game one, that's a crappy trade. That was my view going in. As I became more of a veteran presence in the game and I spent years listening more than I spoke and tried to understand what everybody's job was, tried to compare baseball to basketball or football. I can only tell you how hard it is to get to a place where you're comfortable with the Major League Baseball draft, where you're giving millions of dollars to players who are not going to help you for maybe five years. It's just insane if you think about it. We always wanted to draft college guys who could make it to the big leagues the week after signing. And we had to be taught that development takes time. And you have to depend on your baseball people. It's what they do. I'll never forget Christian Yelich. We're off the subject. We're off the rails already, Mikey. Mikey's here, not Coca. It's the monthly mailbag. Mikey enjoys listening to the mailbag, and he gets paid for it. Do you get extra pay for this, Mikey? Actually, I don't think you do. Sorry. Oh, yes, you do. It's overtime. Love it. I'll talk very slowly because CBS can afford it. So we drafted this kid, this outfielder from high school in California. And we're told, hey, this guy has a sweet swing. He's a lefty. He's really going to be something someday. And he doesn't have any power. But mark my words, he's going to hit for power. And these scouts, their job 
is to look at someone and project what that person will be. Not tomorrow, but in two, five, and 10 years. And then each player in your minor league system or each player who you're scouting, who you may draft, or each player who you trade for from another team, they get grades. Our grades were on a 20 to 80 system. 20 is me. I've got a 20 arm. I have a 20 bat. I have a 20 glove. 80 is Mookie Betts' arm and defense. Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton's power. And Tony Gwynn's average. That's an 80. 50 is an average player in baseball. When you get to 60 and above, you're talking about an all-star. 70 or above, you're talking about a Hall of Famer. 40 and below, you're talking about getting fired. So that's generally the grade. There's something below when you're grading both the power and defense and the five tools of the game, speed, arm, power, defense, average. Those may be the five tools. God, I'm going to have to think about that, Mikey. Let's count out five tools for everyone. The first tool is your arm. The second tool is your bat. The third tool is your glove. The fourth tool is your feet for speed. And the fifth tool is escaping me. It's definitely five tools and it's not what you think. It's actually another, what's the word, Mikey? Not a benefit. It's another, uh, oh my God, I'm having a moment. Here we are five minutes in. I'm having a moment. It's another way you can evaluate a player is the fifth tool. So what these scouts do is they grade every tool on 20 to 80, and then they will give a final grade on the player overall with a A for acquire, DNA, do not acquire, D for draft, DND, don't draft. And then once players are in your system or they've been traded for, the scouts step aside And the player development people take over. That's the hitting coach and the pitching coach and the manager at all your minor league levels. They then have to write reports after every game where they write about what they're seeing in their players. They're not scouting. They're actually commenting on the player's development. That's why it's called player development. They're developing players. They also give grades to the players. And one of the grades that they give is NP. That's a no prospect, meaning If you have enough NPs in your organization, you're going to be ranked 30th in your farm system, and you're going to have to really talk up those guys in order to get another team to be interested. Because generally, if you grade a guy in NP, so will your counterpart, your other 29 counterparts. The way trades get made is when you evaluate someone at a 60, a tool, and another GM or another person in player development or scouting on another team evaluates him as a 70. Because every time we traded for someone, we felt as though we were getting back a better player than we were giving, assuming money's not involved. And when two people evaluate the same player, they'll be in the same neighborhood, but it's the margins that make the difference. The margins decide... Did you win a trade or did you lose a trade? And when do you learn each trade's margins? The answer is when you trade for Randy Razarena and you give up a big prospect for him, they gave up Matthew Libertori. There's no way I pronounced his name right, but Coke is not here, so we won't know what it is. The big time prospect was traded back uh, for Razarena, but 
The other key part of that trade, don't forget, was Jose Martinez. Anyway, you may, may have forgotten that. But in any case, there is no way when you trade for someone like Randy Arazarena that you expect him to have the type of postseason he had, where he set the record all time, not just rookie record. You know this from episodes of Nothing Personal. He set the record for home runs and for hits and for total bases. I think he may have tied the, home, the, the record for extra base hits. It was an out-of-this-world, out-of-this-world postseason. So the owner of the Cardinals is saying, how, how did you trade this guy? How could you do that? And you say, well, our evaluation is that he'd be around a 50 player, maybe a 55. He just happened to have an 80 month. And when you have an 80 month, it can make everyone in scouting and player development look bad. So what you learn over the years is as a president of a team, when do you bring down the hammer on your scouts? Is it after a first round pick that goes bad? No. Is it after an eighth round pick goes great and becomes a star and then you give an extension to that scout? No. You are evaluating a body of work, which is why when you bring in scouts, you are developing them as well. You're learning how they evaluate. Here's the way I would tell you to think about evaluating scouts. Do you read movie reviews? If you do, are there certain people whose reviews you count on more than others? So if the person whose reviews you count on gives the movie a bad review, generally you will agree that it was a bad movie and the converse is true as well. That's what you have to do with your scouts. You have to see a body of their work and then see what becomes of the players, knowing that it takes years. And that's just the baseball evaluation. Obviously, I've fired scouts before I knew whether they were good or not because they had expense fraud where they were expensing too many things that they shouldn't have been expensing, where they had trouble getting along with others in the sandbox. There are all sorts of reasons why you fire people. But in terms of evaluating a scout for purely his eyes for scouting, that has to percolate. So the Cardinals scout who had Randy Arazarena as an average player is not getting fired quite yet. Just like the Marlins scout who told me that Luis Castillo would only be a bullpen arm when we traded him to Cincinnati or that Chris Paddock would be at best a fifth starter when we traded him to San Diego for Fernando Rodney. And I've gotten crushed on the Twitter over those trades. Ironically, take a look at Chris Paddock. Now he had that great run but you don't evaluate the trade when Chris Paddock has a huge first season. You have to see what his career is like. If Chris Paddock ends up as a five starter, then I evaluate the scout positively and I would make that Rodney trade again and again and again to help the major league team. What we would do with the Marlins is we would keep track. One thing that baseball doesn't do a lot of is hold people accountable. It's very anecdotal. You're sitting in a room at the winter meetings or at the GM meetings, or after a game or during the game, and you're with your baseball people, hey, what do you think of uh, John Schmuck? Oh, yeah, no, he's good. He's good. I, we like him. Yeah, look, to take a look at that arm. Those type of conversations go on every game. There's players, we talk about players every day, all day. What I used to do was keep track. So when we had to draft, for example, 
and there were people who wanted to draft Matt Dominguez instead of Jason Hayward, as an example. I'm going to keep track of those who wanted to draft Dominguez, those who wanted to draft Hayward. The people who didn't want to draft Stanton, I'd keep track versus the people who did, by the way. It was unanimous. Everyone wanted to draft Stanton. But the people who said you can wait till the second round, I paid attention to that versus people who said you better grab him in the first round versus people who said he'll be there in the third round because everyone thinks he's going to play football. So if you keep track, it makes it easier to evaluate. But you can only do that if you're on a long-term deal, right? Because if you're on a short-term deal, it doesn't really make sense to keep track that way because you don't have time to wait. So therefore, you make rash decisions, and that's a sign of an organization that is not going to do well. You need continuity in your organization because you have to learn the rhythms of your scouts and of your player development people, which doesn't mean we don't change them out each year, but you do it at the margins only. So the answer is teams scrutinize scouts and player development personnel after trades. The bad teams do it earlier. The good teams do it later. But every team will scrutinize the result of trades because we don't want to be embarrassed. As a team president, I don't want to keep reading in the paper the fact that I traded Chris Paddock and Luis Castillo and on and on and on and on. I don't want to be reminded 14 years later that I traded Miguel Cabrera to get Cameron Mabin and Andrew Miller. I didn't know them except they were two of the top five prospects in baseball. I didn't know that they weren't going to turn into anything, although they did. They had good careers, but certainly not superstars. So along that line, the next question, moving right along, as a Pirate fan, Watching players like Garrett Cole, Tyler Glasnow, Austin Meadows, and Charlie Morton have postseason success is rather bittersweet. I don't know why you're saying rather bittersweet. It sucks. I'm happy for the players, but always thinking what could have been had Pirates management been able to keep them all in Pittsburgh. As a team president, how did you feel seeing former good players turn great after they left your team? Do you think small market teams like the Pirates could do more to keep these type of players around? So I'm going to let you in on a little inside, a little inside scoop. When I was president of the Marlins, I would meet the media and I would always say the same thing. I never look back once a player has been released or traded. I don't focus on what that player has done. I was absolutely not telling you the truth. Because I didn't want you to look back and think that I was bad at my job. I've never met one GM or team president or owner who doesn't look at trades they've made and follow the players they've traded to see what becomes of their careers. Why? Because there's so much change at the GM level. They're always, when you're hired as GM, you're hired to be fired. When you're hired as manager, you're hired to be fired. Frankly, when you're hired as president, you're hired to be fired. The only people who are hired not to be fired are owners. And frankly, they're not hired. They just write checks. Lots of them. And so we all keep track. Totally normal. But your question is a little deeper than that, which is, if you're the pirates, you're talking about what will go down as one of the worst trades ever. And that was Chris Archer for Austin Meadows and Tyler Glasnow. Now, Tyler Glasnow, you know, was the pitcher for the Rays. They just went to the World Series. Austin Meadows, third baseman, he would lead off. Why, why Adamas kept playing third and and playing every day is beyond me. I guess Kevin Cash and the entire front office are very much in the Pat Riley school of thought 
which is you dance with the people you brought to the dance. I tweeted that and people didn't know what I meant by that. That is Pat Riley explaining to the public why he let John Starks shoot two for 18 in game seven of the 1994 NBA finals. And his response was, I'm going to dance with the people I brought to the dance. I love that, except it drives me batty. Because why do you have to say that? Can't you go to the dance with someone and see the hottest chick in the corner or the most handsome guy and say, hey, I got a better offer. See you later, alligator. Now, does that make me a bad person? That when you're in sports, I'm not talking about in real life, I'm talking about in sports, when you see that a guy doesn't have it, you've got to make an adjustment. It's We talked about this on an episode last week or this week or whenever, uh, nothing personal about Blake Snell and Game 6 of the World Series. you got to make an adjustment if you're the front office and if you're Kevin Cash and keep him in the damn game. So the Chris Archer trade, to me, goes down as a bad trade only because Chris Archer, they were taking on money, thinking that he was going to be a piece one of the final pieces to help the Pirates open a window of winning. That type of desperation is enveloped by a cologne that I wore for 16 of my 18 years. The smell of that cologne is pungent because you think you're one player away. You delude yourself into thinking if we sign Edinson Volquez, that can replace Jose Fernandez. If you sign Wei-Yin Chen, we've got enough that Stanton Yalichozuna can lead us to the playoffs. If we do just this, just that, one away, the problem with that theory is it's not your baseball people telling you that. It's your media, your PR, and your fans telling you that. And every person in the media and every single fan always thinks you're one player away, always wants you to get the next free agent, always wants you to keep your guys and sign your guys. So when you ask a question, do I think the Pirates could do more to keep these type of players around? They need to do less. They just need to be as smart as the Tampa Bay Rays, and they're not, and that's the issue. There is only one Tampa Bay Rays. They know exactly when to get rid of players, and they know when to keep players, and they don't care about the player's name. They don't have a relationship with the players. They don't get personal. There's no emotion. Bob Nutting, for all the criticism that you give for the owner of the Pirates for being cheap and being a loser and the team not winning, he wants to win so badly that he feels like he could do anything and would do anything. But he also knows that just signing a bunch of players or throwing money doesn't make you win. The problem that he's had is he hasn't had quality baseball people. Do you know what uh, Neil Huntington's nickname was? Do you remember that name? Uh, Mikey, was Neil Huntington the GM of the Pirates? Am I, I, I think I have that right. And I, I could be wrong, but I think I'm right. We used to call him Pump Fake. And, you, you know, we called him that too. You can tell him we said that. He knows exactly what we mean by that. Pump Fake means he'd always be all excited about a trade. Pump fake, no trade. But in this case, he did make a trade and it did not work out. As I said, all the pirates have to do to keep Glasnow and Meadows. Do you know what you have to do? Say it with me on three. Here we go. One, two, three. Don't trade them. 
Number three, another question. This is a good one too. I've been a Giants fan my entire life. I didn't know whether you meant San Francisco Giants or New York Giants, but we continue. They have been bad more than good. That could still be the New York Giants in football or the San Francisco Giants in baseball. Would you rather win two titles and be bad for the surrounding 20 years or be a consistent playoff team? Now I think he must mean the New York Giants because the San Francisco Giants won three titles in 10, 12, and 14. This is the debate that I love to have. I swear to you, I thought I had this debate on nothing personal, but maybe not. It may have been on a radio show or some other show I did because it reminds me of the Atlanta Braves. The Atlanta Braves were a dynasty in the 90s and they got one ring, but they made the playoffs every single year. The Dodgers are the Atlanta Braves of the 90s. They win the division eight years in a row. They have one ring, by the way, which is not even designed yet. That's how new their ring is. The Marlins, on the other hand, have two rings. And every other year, they stink. So since 97, in 23 years, they have two rings. The Dodgers won their first ring in 32 years. The Marlins have more World Series rings than the Dodgers, and the Dodgers outspend the Marlins by a factor of at least 10. But everyone thinks the Marlins are a piece of crap organization. I don't take it personally but I try to explain to people what the math is. Do you know how many teams there are in baseball, Mikey? 30. So the odds would tell you that you should win a World Series once every 30 years. Well, the Dodgers were a little overdue and the Marlins who have been around now for 27 years, they cannot win a World Series for as long as the Dodgers went between their last two, 1988 and 2020. And they'll have two World Series in 60 years or one every 30 years. And that is average. So you're asking me, would I rather be in the playoffs every year? Or would I rather have two rings and be bad for the other 18 years in between? It's not even a question. When you look back on your career, the only people in Major League Baseball or the National Basketball Association, or the National Football League, who define their career as, yeah, we made it to the playoffs eight times in his 18 years. Those are for people who don't have rings. When you have a ring, you say, he won one World Series championship. That's what people say about me. I mean, after they get through all the other comments that they're going to make, they would say, he was the president of a team that won a World Series championship. Wouldn't say the fact that I was bad every other season. It just doesn't really work that way. So the fact of the matter is that I would be take the Marlins any day of the week. And I firmly believe that everyone else would too. Thank you for that. Okay. Ooh, we're getting personal. Do you have a failure in your career? Someone asked that if you had to do it all over again, you would have done the same thing. I appreciate you asking that. I like talking about my failures. My failures are the reasons that I'm successful. My failures pretty much define me because I've got this level of self-doubt and insecurity where I believe that my failures are all amplified. And I believe that people focus only on my failures and not my successes. I believe that if I were to ask anyone 
who doesn't know me, but anyone who knows just the public me, they would go first to the failures and then maybe mention the successes. And I take that to heart because it means that I've had too many failures, not enough successes. That's my outward facing response. Now, let me privately tell you what I think about failing. Fear of failure drives me more than any other emotion or feeling that I could have or search to have. But the secret is, I love it when I fail. So I fear it more than God, and I crave it more than candy. That is my relationship with failure. I have evolved over the years through therapy and through self-actualization and through trying to learn, get to know myself as I've gotten older. And by the way, I am still not there at my advanced age of 52. But the fact is that what I have discovered is that the reason that I fear failure, it's not because I don't want to disappoint my dad or disappoint my mom. It's not a mommy daddy issue. It's none of that. It's that I don't want anyone to be able to do anything better than I can do it if it's something that I can do. Let me explain that. I know I can't dunk like LeBron James. I am not a failure because I can't dunk like LeBron James. I'm talking about on a level playing field where intellect and drive and determination and persistence are the barometers. I don't want to come in second place to anybody. And when I do, I love it because it means that I still have a spot to go. Schoolyard picks, I was always picked 10th on the five on five basketball team because I was short, still am. Loved it. I want to come in it as the 10th pick and dominate. I want to show you that I can dribble and shoot and pass and play defense and hustle and do all the things that people don't want to do, not because they can't do it because they don't want to do it. When I go into a in law school and I'm doing legal arguments when I'm trying to get somebody out of prison or trying to get somebody into prison, whatever the case I'm doing, it's an unwinnable case. And that's why they give it to the young guy. When I lose, I take it personally and it informs how I act going forward as I work harder to win the next one. For me, failure is always the on deck hitter. I have my eye on it. Once in a while, he'll come to the plate. But I always know that once at the plate, I have a chance to get a hit. Getting a hit is my equivalent of being successful when you have been told that you're going to fail. When you've been put in a position where failure is a more likely scenario. So you're asking me a relatively personal question, which is, (laughs) would I do the same thing knowing that what I did resulted in a failure. Do you have a frame of references, by the way? How do you know if something's hot? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller, Walker. You only know something's hot if you know what cold is. One of the most dangerous diseases you can have is to have no sense of touch for heat because you can put your hand on a stove and if you're 
neurons and nerves aren't working, you wouldn't move your hand. The reason you move your hand when you touch something hot is your brain gets a message from the nerves saying, holy crap, lift your hand up, idiot. If you don't have that, you have a problem. It's why athletes, when we give them painkillers, I always feel guilty about it, not really, because I want them to play. What painkillers do is they let the body keep going even though it shouldn't. Because what pain is, it's the nerves telling your brain, don't do that again. When your knee starts hurting from running, your brain is told, stop running. When your stomach hurts from eating, your brain is told, stop eating. It's why goldfish die, by the way, because they're never told, they never feel full. Imagine if you never felt full. Some of you would say that's heaven. I would say that's hell. H-E double hockey sticks. I want to feel full before I even eat. And the feeling, by the way, Mikey, I apologize for going off subject and off script, but it's nothing personal. We always go off script. The feeling that I get when I fail is an addiction because I know that success is coming because then I've got a frame of reference. When I do something and it works, I only know it worked because I did it before and it didn't work. So is there anything that I would do over again? What would you guys say would be my biggest failure? I'll, I'll answer that because I'll give you a second to think. Take a minute amongst yourselves. Don't hit pause because I'm not going anywhere. I think that people would say my biggest failure was 2012 when we opened Marlins Park and signed Jose Reyes, Heath Bell, Mark Burley, and we didn't win. We signed Ozzy Guillen as our manager. We had a losing season and then traded everyone away. I think everyone would say that's my biggest failure. And if I had to do it all over again, guess what? I'm going to channel Jack Nicholson here. You're goddamn right I did. That's ordering the code red. I would do it again. Is that amazing for you to hear? That I would do something again knowing how epic and colossal a failure it was? Do you know why? Because I believe in my decision-making process. I know exactly what we were trying to do in 12. We stretched ourselves to the point of night sweats, including trying to sign pool holes, because we wanted to finally bring winning to South Florida after we had won in 03, which was nine years earlier. We tried again in 04 and 05. It didn't work. Broke down the team. Built it up again from 06. Had a winning team in 09, but couldn't make the playoffs. Tried to piece it together in 10 and 11 because we wanted to win so people would buy tickets in the new ballpark thinking that we were headed in the right direction. And then in 12, we wanted to bop everyone over the head like one of those carnival games where you hit the bell and that bell hits the bell. How's that for a description, Mikey? Did you get that one? You know that carnival game where you, where you have this hugely heavy hammer and you hit something and it raises something. If it goes to a certain level, you get a huge stuffed animal. It doesn't fit in your car. And you spend like $50 to get that stuffed animal, which you could buy on Amazon for $4.99. Anyone been there playing those carnival games? Hello, Mikey? Have you ever heard of that? Yes, that is true. It is in Borat too. It's that thing in Borat, which we reviewed on Nothing Personal this week. And Borat actually is the one who's on the pole. I think Borat is the one in the diaper who gets hit in the, in the jimmy with that. But I can't remember, but I did laugh. Why are we talking about carnival games? I, I literally have no idea. How great is this? It's Nothing Personal, baby. We're back. 
I have, oh, 2012. The reason I would do it again and do it again and do it again is that why wouldn't you try to sign the best bat in free agency, Jose Reyes, the best arm in free agency, Mark Burley, the best closer in free agency, Heath Bell. Why wouldn't you do all that and get a manager who had won a World Series with the Marlins in 03 as a uh, um, third base coach and had managed in 05 by himself to a World Series in Chicago? Why wouldn't we do all that? The answer is I would, and I would do it again. God, it didn't work though. So why would I do it again? Because each time you go for something, if it's worth getting, you have to be willing to not get it. Are you with me on that? Anything worth getting, there has to be a huge risk that you won't get it. Going for it the way we did in 2012 came with the risk, and I knew very well what the numbers were. I knew very well that we weren't raising the revenue that we thought we were. I knew very well that we didn't have a new TV deal. I knew very well that we had much larger expenses because we were running our own ballpark. I knew very well the cash situation of the owner and what his what his willingness was to write checks. I knew very well what our debt capacity was, how much more money could be borrowed to pay for losses. I knew all of that. And it was a risk worth taking. And I would do it again. The 82-game preseason is in the books, and it's finally time for the real season. Don't miss out on any of the NBA playoff action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. From the play-in tournament through the finals, DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more. From what you've seen so far, do you think there'll be a first-time winner of the NBA championship? If the Pacers... Clippers, Suns, Magic, Pelicans, or T-Wolves win, you win at plus 650. That's six teams to root for, six chances to win. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SAMSON. New customers bet $5 and get $200 in bonus bets instantly. That's code SAMSON, only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Quentin, Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Okay. Next. Why are there league-wide sponsorship deals instead of team-specific deals? What is the incentive for a company to make a national deal? I like that question. Thank you. So let me explain what this is about, if, if you don't mind. 
why would you mind? It's your question. Well, if it's your question, thank you, and you don't need me to explain it. But for everyone else listening, and I do appreciate your loyalty, please download this episode, subscribe, hit that button. Mikey said it's a button that you hit on Apple or Stitcher or Spotify or CastBox or any of the platforms, and just hit subscribe because somehow, as you know, Mikey and Coca get paid for that and me. Thank you. So in baseball, as an example, when you have a team, you are a franchise in a league. There are team deals and there are sponsorship deals. What's the difference? A team deal, that is your money. When you sign up a sponsor, Joe's Neighborhood Drugstore, to be the official drug peddlers of your team and give you $100,000 a year for the designation to be the official drug peddler of your team. I wanted to get Balco as a sponsor, by the way, down in Florida. That would have been amazing. Supply steroids to all the guys. They were getting them anyway. Might as well, we get money too. They give you 100 grand. You keep that money. Let's ignore revenue sharing for now. And Joe's neighborhood drug peddler has rights in your ballpark during your home games. But come postseason, those rights are set aside because part of being a team in a league, being a franchise in a league, is that your deals are subservient to the national deals. So what does that mean? Let's say that Dwayne Reed wants to be the official drug peddlers of Major League Baseball, and they're willing to pay $4 million a year to be the official drug peddlers of Major League Baseball. Part of what they get for that $4 million per year, which they pay to Central Baseball, they pay to the commissioner's office. The commissioner's office, after 20 different steps, which we can talk about on a different show, distributes one thirtieth of that amount to each team. But what they get is the right during jewel events to be the official drug peddler of baseball, all-star game, world series, world baseball classic, home run derby, futures game. These are all called jewel events. National partners partner with baseball because they don't specifically want to be in one market. They want to be in all markets. Now that is their name, not their product. What do I mean? Pepsi was the official beverage partner of Major League Baseball for decades. But there were teams like the Giants and the Braves who had local deals with Coke. You know the big Coke bottle in Atlanta, the big Coke bottle in San Francisco? Well, how does that work? The rule is when a jewel event comes to that ballpark, you can still pour Coke. They pay for pouring rights. That's what a local beverage deal is. They get to actually serve the soda that you drink at games. But the signage in certain parts of the ballpark gets covered up in favor of their competitor, who is the national rights holder. So if Coke is the local deal and Pepsi is the national deal, it creates a conflict come playoff time. And there are 
pages and pages in the contract that deal with what you do in case of a conflict. What you do in case of a conflict is there are certain permanent signs that stay, like the Coke bottle, certain temporary signs like an outfield sign that go. Major League Baseball takes over the outfield signage during all postseason events. Even when you're hosting them, forget the neutral site stuff that we saw this season. When you host a playoff game, the outfield wall in general gets taken over. And on top of that, there are other signs around the ballpark that get taken over by baseball for their national partners. And on top of that, there are green screens behind the plate. So I sell locally signage behind the plate. Like when each row was with the Marlins, we would go to Japan and sell a deal to Sato Pharmaceuticals. They wanted to be behind the plate. When each row was up at bat, they would show the highlight in Japan. People would see Sato Pharmaceuticals. They get all excited. But during the All-Star game at Marlins Park, there was no Sato Pharmaceuticals. They put their own national deals behind the plate. They sell each half inning nationally to a different partner. That national money then gets split. As I said, the local money gets kept. Why companies would want to do national deals is when they are not locally based. So as an example, just pick a company like, uh, what's a corner? I did, right? Didn't we say the perfect example is the Joe's Neighborhood Drugstore. They don't really care about New York. They don't care about any other market. They're only located here. But a company like McDonald's, They want to be everywhere because there are McDonald's everywhere. Now, that's a whole different subject for a different day, the way McDonald's advertises, because McDonald's is actually owned by nobody. It's owned by its franchisees. So you can't do a sponsorship deal with McDonald's without the franchisees. All of the people who own all the McDonald's around the country, they literally help pay for the McDonald's commercials and ads. All that Michael Jordan, all the Larry Bird commercials and Michael Jordan, all those great McDonald's commercials, that's not paid for by big McDonald's in Illinois at their corporate headquarters. That's paid for by local McDonald's shareholders, local McDonald's franchisees. Who, at, who put money in a big marketing pot that is given over to the corporate office of McDonald's and then is spread around the country. Which brings up a whole nother layer of complication, by the way. If the majority of McDonald's sales come from franchisees that are in the New York area and you're a franchisee in Miami and you go to corporate headquarters in Illinois and say, hey, can we be a sponsor of the Marlins? By the way, we're going to need the franchisees in New York to pitch in to do this deal. Corporate office will say, well, sorry, because not enough people eat McDonald's in Miami and everyone's eating McDonald's in the New York area. So those franchisees are quote unquote, big market franchisees, high revenue franchisees. We're going to listen to what they want and you're going to have to give money, Mr. Miami, to a Yankees deal. That always bothered me tremendously when I would go to local companies like Carnival or Ryder or Burger King in Miami. And I'd be told, no, we're not going to do a deal with the Marlins because our people around the country don't care, which I knew was wrong because Carnival does deals with the heat because Mickey Harrison owns both. Burger King does deals with everybody. They just didn't like us for whatever reason. And we even had an employee, a great employee who was married like to the head marketing guy at Burger King, and we still couldn't do a deal. It's an outrage. I'm bitter about that, CR. You know who you are. 
So companies put their budgets together and they decide whether or not they want to do team-specific deals or national deals. And it is based solely on the demographic of the company and of the consumer and what the object of the game is. Are they looking for brand exposure or are they looking to move units? It's not that complicated. We're trying to get companies to give us money so we can spend it on players. Companies are using marketing budget because when the head of marketing doesn't use his marketing budget, he loses it the next year. So the people who do the marketing budgets do it because they have to. It's quite simple. One of these days, Mike, I'm going to tell the meeting of JP Morgan when we try to get naming rights from them. What a cluster. Pepsi, we try to get naming rights from them. The guy I negotiated with, his name was Massimo. What a great guy. We were so close to a deal. And then he got shit canned. Yeah, that didn't do well for us. Okay, next. This was an interesting question. I, I, I wanted to end with this because it's very pertinent with the election coming up so soon. What's it like to have a player on your team who doesn't speak much of, if any, English? How do they get along with their teammates who only speak English? I appreciate that you asked that question. It's pretty important, actually, because in the clubhouse, you've got players who speak English, Japanese, Spanish, some French. Clubhouses have a ton of clicks, something I noticed over the 18 years. It's not just that the white people with the white people, the black people, the black people, and the Latinos with the Latinos. That'd be too obvious and silly. The clicks are based on experience, age, talent level. Bench players, starters, starters, pitchers, bullpen arms, starting pitchers, starting position players. It's not really based on color. Language is definitely an issue inside the clubhouse. The last collective bargaining agreement in baseball, there was a requirement that we had to hire a translator. And we had to do every memo in Spanish and in English because we didn't want the people who don't speak English, the players who don't speak English, to be ashamed of the fact they didn't speak English and to be unknowing of the rules and regulations of the game. This all started when people who spoke Spanish and know English didn't realize, oh, we can't do steroids. Oh, we can't gamble on baseball. I had no idea. Meanwhile, of course, they knew that. So having a player who doesn't speak English on the team never bothered me because I would communicate in baseball lingo with the players. So baseball lingo is attaboy, a hit on the ass, a tap on the shoulder, a rub of the kepi, a rub of the head, strikeout, stolen base, missed a sign. Everyone in baseball knows several baseballisms, even if they don't speak English. And every team in baseball has multiple players who speak Spanish and multiple players who are bilingual. So all the teammates get along, even if it is that someone who speaks no English is friends with someone who's bilingual, who's friends with someone who does speaks no Spanish, and then the three of them hang out. So you've got Spanish, English, and Spanish, English, and the three of them can talk and communicate and have fun. And they do. You see a lot of that on the road pre-COVID. And there's no issue there. The biggest issue that happens between players and the biggest barrier has nothing to do with language. What would you think players would not get along 
What would cause players to not get along? What do you think, Mikey? Type it in. Say it in my ear. What would cause players to not get along? You got it. There's one thing. Money. Jealousy over contracts. Jealousy over whether or not that player was sent down, kept in the minor leagues, kept in the major leagues. Jealousy of perks in a contract. Do you have a suite on the road? Where do you sit on the bus? Where's your locker in the clubhouse? Jealousy. How many times are you on the board during a psych-up video? Are you first? Are you last? Are you in the middle? How many times do they show your face? But the biggest arguments I've ever seen, not about lack of hustle, not about someone wanting to win more than someone else. It was when a player felt slighted because another player got a better and bigger deal because that player would come and complain to me, be angry with me, not get along with his teammate. And you know exactly what I would say back to him. It's business. It's nothing personal. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com